Welcome to another episode of the Bridging Theology Podcast, which connects scholarship to the Christian life. I'm Ryan Reed. And I'm John Stovell. We're members of the Bridging Theology hosting team, along with Drs. Beth Stovell, Candice Smith, Claudia Herrera-Montero, and Kevin Hill. Today, we're very pleased to uh, have Jennifer Hurt join us. So Jennifer Hurt is the Gilbert Stark Professor of Christian Ethics at Yale University Divinity School, where she has been on the faculty since 2010. She earned a BA in Religion and Biology from Oberlin College and an MA and PhD from Princeton University. Her most recent books are Forming Humanity, Redeeming the German Bildung Tradition from Chicago University Press 2019, and Assuming Responsibility, Ecstatic Eudaimonism and the Call to Live Well, published in 2022 by Oxford University Press. A recent past president of the Society of Christian Ethics, she serves on a number of editorial boards and publishes widely in Virtue Ethics, Ethical Formation, Moral Philosophy, and the History of Christian Ethical Reflection. Under the auspices of a grant funded by the Templeton Foundation, she is currently pursuing a project on the Animality of Moral Agency, Theological Anthropology, and the Pre-Reflective Elements of Ethical Life. So um, our uh, f- uh, familiar, some listeners will be familiar with this, but our conversation today will have three sections or movements. And we're going to begin with discussing uh, Jennifer's work, uh, and then we're going to explore how this connects to the Christian life and to the church specifically. And then last, we're going to talk about marginalia, uh, so some fun questions about Jennifer, just get to get to know her as a whole person. Um, and those marginalia maybe seem uh, disparate, not connected to uh Jennifer's academic work, but we really believe here that it is. So um, we want to um, bring that to the fore and just talk about Jennifer as a whole person. So Jennifer, welcome to the Bridging Theology podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thanks so much, Ryan. And thank you, John. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, I think it should be a lot of fun. I'm, I'm looking forward to this one too. Cool. So Jennifer, we just thought um, we could start by just hearing a little bit about you, even just to begin. And so what would be something about you that most people wouldn't know? Uh, Well, my father worked in international agriculture. And so I grew up in the Philippines. I spent um, 10 years living there from the age of five to the age of 15. And I was living in an international a multi-religious scientific community. And it was a, really a, a, a wonderful experience and also an experience that I think has shaped me pretty deeply. Marvelous. I visited the Philippines once a number of years ago. It's lovely, just lovely place. Yeah. You say it shaped you a bit. I'm curious to know, how, what would you say it's, it's shaped you? How has it done that? I know we're already going a little off script, but that's just interesting to me. So. Well, I think for one thing, just being in this community of people who were living outside of their home home cultures because of their commitment to trying to make life better for others, that mm-hmm. certainly shaped me in terms of thinking about what's what is a worthwhile way to to live one's life. Mm-hmm. Also, living in a in a multi religious context was was shaping for me that I saw that people lived um, faithful lives with very different religious commitments. And I learned to respect that deeply. And I think it also drove my curiosity about theological questions being in that context. Yeah, very good. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, very good. Well, I was wondering, actually that kind of segues nicely into my next question for you. So how then did you become a Christian ethicist? I mean, looking back, how do you reflect theologically on how God has led you into your life's work? Yeah, well, I could probably go on all day about that, but I'll try to give you a somewhat shorter version of it. Uh, you know, as a child, as a young person, I was very passionate about my faith mm-hmm. and um, experienced yeah, going to church as uh, and, and being, being in the religious community as just a site of great joy. And I also love to ask theological questions and pulled off every book I could find you know, off the bookshelf and devoured it. Mm-hmm. So I just had a lot of curiosity around these questions and kept pursuing them into college where I first started out. You mentioned the d- double major in religion and biology. Mm-hmm. I started with the biology part. I loved biology, um, but I realized along the way, I really liked learning all the interesting things that biologists had 
discovered, but I wasn't quite sure I wanted to do biological research, which actually struck me as rather boring and repetitive. <laughs> and in contrast, the religious studies courses that I took just continued to pull me deeper and deeper into reflecting theologically and philosophically. And at some point along the way, I thought, well, you know, there are a few lucky people who get to spend their lives doing this. And I could just try and see where it leads. And I have been extraordinarily fortunate that in my case, it it has led to a, a wonderful career of, of teaching and research. Marvelous. Yeah. That sounds quite lovely. And yeah, that, that sense of the, the curiosity, I, I can certainly identify with that. Uh, yeah, the wanting to read all the things and just getting excited about it and having the privilege of getting to pursue it. Yeah, it's it's kind of a wonderful thing to be able to do that. So anyway. And Jennifer, is there something specifically that led you to ethics in particular? Or um, how yeah, did you get interested in those questions? So that's a good question. I would say that actually ethics and theology and philosophy of religion have always been somewhat permeable for me. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really set out to do ethics. I've been in somewhat different institutional locations with different hats and descriptors attached. So it wasn't really specifically that I set out to do ethics. Uh, I, I you know, certainly think that reflecting thoughtfully on how we live our lives is, is a key part of the Christian life. So of course, ethics was going to be uh, central to, to my reflection. But I am, unlike uh, some other ethicists, I wasn't driven by a particular, say, moral problem or particular yeah. applied area. That's never been what's been front and center for me. Hmm. Cool. No, I just wondered about how, I, I've definitely seen that in your work, that it is very, you move between these different things. So, but yeah, I wonder about that center. So we thought we would start with a, a kind of a classic question in terms of your your work and your thinking, uh, Jennifer. We we wanted to ask you, how would you say, so this is a very classic question, but what is the good life and how can we live it? Um, what would you say to that? Yeah, so I would say that most basically the good life is a life devoted to what is good in itself, what is worthy of our admiration, worthy of our support, worthy of our commitment and dedication and so on. I think of one of the most famous lines of the poet Mary Oliver, who says, what will you do with this one wild, precious mm. life? Yeah. And like that. I may not have gotten it exactly yeah. correct. Mm -hmm. But I think that uh, the good life is a life lived in the presence of that question, right? mm. really living with that question, which grasps the preciousness of the gift of life and then sets out trying to spend that life in a, in a worthy way or a worthwhile way. And there's no simple formula for this. The good life looks different for different people, depending on you know what are your gifts and talents, what is the situation that you inhabit, um, but I think it's fundamentally different than asking what's in it for me, hmm. a life yeah. that's approached in that way. What can I get out of life for me? And I think, you know, theologically, this is ultimately a matter of living in a way that glorifies God. Uh, hmm. So that the old catechism that says our end is to... to Glorify God is, I think, really something that hmm. we we come alive when we grasp that in all of its depth and richness. Yeah, and so it seems like you would say that, like, so if it's it's an orientation towards what is good is what would describe this life, and then in terms of like, um, how how do you think someone could get a sense of what is good if that you know the next question like they they say okay that makes sense to me i want to but i want to do that i want to pursue what's good how can i get started on that i think we get started just you know in our ordinary everyday lives right uh, what is it that strikes us as admirable as inspiring mm -hmm. We, we see examples and we respond to them and we sort through 
it, it is complex, right? We sort through the examples that we we can't emulate because I'm not, you know, I'm not as fast or as strong as that person. So I won't emulate that. But what is it about maybe that athlete that is something that could be an element of my life? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I do think that we have our sort of our, our antenna are out there for goodness. Mm-hmm. And also we discover the good in negative ways mm-hmm. by what harms us, what harms others, where do we see suffering? So this recognition of injustice, the recognition of what might be done to right, right the wrongs that we see in the world. We, mm-hmm. we learn from, from our communities, from our elders. We learn from their inconsistencies sometimes. Mm-hmm. I think we're always engaged in a process of recognizing where our heroes fall short and where our shaping communities fall fall short and have mis- malformed us. And then we dive deeper into that within those inconsistencies. What is what is leading us deeper to, toward the good and what is leading us away? That's really helpful. Thank you. So I guess in that I'm wondering, so how then does Jesus sort of affect the way we think about our ethics in light of that? Yeah, well, I think for Christians, Jesus is the primary way in which we experience the overflowing love of God. Mm-hmm. So it is in Jesus that we come to know God and we come to know God's character. And so we see the overflowing love of God in Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners and seeking to heal people and forgiving and so on. And, and that's very concrete and it's very profound. And among other things that it helps us to see that a life that's devoted to what is good in itself is not somehow leading us away from finite earthly goods, mm, leading us yeah. to God, but away from other people. No, we see in Jesus that it's a matter of being led to God in and through one another and in and through the finite earthly goods that we're surrounded by. Very good. Yeah, I'm reminded of a phrase, the being so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. And what you're, I think you're saying is that that certainly is not what Jesus tried to teach us to do. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, that's very good. So, Thank you. So then, um, Bring, kind of bringing together the, your interest in theology and ethics. Um, so I know a major interest of your work has been eudaimonism, um, Jennifer. And I wondered if you could help our listeners understand what eudaimonism is. I know it's it's a complex idea. And then talk about, I, we're going to get, I think, a little technical here, but different kinds of eudaimonism and the one that you you hold to and, and, and why. So there's kind of, a, I guess, a couple parts there. But So what is eudaimonism and how do you think about eudaimonism? Sure, absolutely. Um, so the term eudaimonism comes from the ancient Greek word eudaimonia, which is usually translated as happiness or flourishing, but there's really no very good English translation for it. And ancient Greek philosophers like Aristotle identified the ultimate end that all human beings seek as eudaimonia. And he argued also that eudaimonia requires the virtues. So happiness or flourishing requires living a life of virtue. So it's sometimes eudaimonism is called a morality of happiness mm-hmm. to try to convey the way in which it links happiness with the virtues and sees them as, as just necessarily tied to one another. So I distinguish between two kinds of eudaimonism. And this is where we're going to get slightly technical yeah, 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 exactly. for yeah. a minute or two, because I think it's important to distinguish what I call welfare prior eudaimonism from what I call ecstatic eudaimonism or goodness prior eudaimonism. Hmm. So welfare prior eudaimonism thinks that I should live a life of virtue fundamentally because it's good for me. So going back to this idea of what's in it for me, welfare prior eudaimonism thinks, well, I get what's good for me if I live a life of virtue, and that's why I should live a life of virtue. Hmm. And I would contrast that with ecstatic ecstatic eudaimonism, which thinks that I should live a life of virtue because it's good. Hmm. 
you know, period, because that's a good way to live. It's the fitting way to live. It's the appropriate way to live. So what should I do with my life, with my agency? I should do something that's worthy of Hmm. the kind of creature that I am. And we are kinds of creature that uh, are able to live lives of virtue, which is a a wonderful and amazing thing to, to be able to do. So eudaimonism gets a lot of flack um, for being egoistic Mm -hmm. or for being improperly self-regarding, focused on the self. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, this comes from uh, the translation of eudaimonia as happiness. And it comes from the fact that often it's welfare prior eudaimonism that's being talked about as opposed to ecstatic or goodness prior eudaimonism. So I don't think that ecstatic eudaimonism is at all egoistic um, or improperly self-regarding. But I can see why the critique is sometimes made, because I do think that there are some issues with this other form of eudaimonism, welfare prior. So when it comes to ecstatic eudaimonism, what I would say is it is, at the end of the day, of course, it is good for me to perfect my character. It is good for me to live an appropriate, fitting life. But it's good for me because it is independently good. So because it is good and appropriate and fitting for me to devote my life to what is good, then, of course, that also is good for me. It's perfective of me. Mm-hmm. So that may sound like a little bit of a, a, you know, a mind game or something, but I think it's actually extraordinarily important. Um, and theologically, we can uh, perhaps grasp this by by naming the fact that the ultimate good is God. Mm-hmm. The ultimate good is God. And so welfare prior eudaimonism is idolatrous. It names the ultimate good as my good, mm-hmm. uh, when in fact the ultimate good is God. And yes, I therefore want to be appropriately related to God since God is perfect goodness. So I hope that wasn't too technical. I hope it, yeah, no, I it's hope. good. Yeah, no, that was good. It was reminding me of. It's interesting just thinking about this, even seeing it in scripture here and there. I mean, uh, there's various spots like the wisdom literature. You know, the, you know where it'll talk about you know, do these things. You know, live this way because, well, now I'm not going out of wisdom literature, but you know, so it'll it will go well with you in the land and so on, right? So there is that aspect, but there's also many a spot in scripture that talks about you should still do what's right because it's right. And it might bring you suffering. I mean, that's basically what the story of Job is, right? And pursue it anyway. And it's good to pursue the good, even when it doesn't feel like it's just making me happy, even if it does also happen to do that sometimes. Absolutely. Hmm. So I've always been a little, I guess, confused on this point, Jennifer. (laughs) Like, I think that's part of why I'm asking you this. But I think that there's this intrinsic it's confusing as a Christian sometimes to know about like, it seems like we can't help but think about our own well-being, our own happiness. We, you know, it's, it's as Americans, it's like very, but then I agree. It also can seem improperly self-regarding. Um, and so how do you think that like happiness is integrated into this overall scheme? I, I'm talking about happiness here in terms of like, I guess, some sort of, well, there's different ways to define happiness, I guess, but some sort of personal satisfaction, personal well-being, um, you know, these, and maybe the, we want to distinguish, you want to distinguish between them. But how does, how does a Christian kind of deal with that, that they think that I'm, it's important to me to be happy? It seems like that's, an, but I, at the same time, I don't, I don't, you know, I, I feel like God wants me to not just think about that all the time. So how do you, how do you think about integrating those two kind of different um, realities? Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a really important question. So, I mean, you asked me initially about the good life. And when we talk about the good life, we don't really distinguish between a life that is lived well and a life that goes well. But mm-hmm. of, course, of course, those two things don't always go hand in hand. And the English word happiness refers as much to how life goes as it does to how we live. And we have a lot more control over how we live than we do over how life goes. And of course, both of these matter to us. And the English word happiness also refers to our subjective experience of life. So there's how we live, there's how life goes, and there's a subjective experience of 
life and, and, and how it's going. So how we, how we feel about our lives, let's say. So a life that's lived well can be full of suffering and loss, right? And still be a life that's lived well. Hmm. We could be responding well in the context of those losses, right? Mm-hmm. And it could be that we'd even want to say our lives are going as well as they possibly could, given those dreadful circumstances. Hmm. So I would say to bring in the, the terminology, again, that's a, that's a eudaimon life. That's a life that's being lived well. Right. Maybe you're fighting injustice, right? Maybe there's some something you've got to do with your life and it, it's burdensome, right? Or maybe you're just unlucky. You know, some horrible tragedy happens in your life. Mm. It's a lot of suffering, and a lot of loss, but you may be living well in it. And you could have a certain sense of satisfaction in circumstances like that. It's like, mm. I am doing something worthwhile. I am doing what I am called to do. This is... And that could be satisfying, but I don't think we would want to say you're happy in a situation mm-hmm. like that. That just is a kind of a violation of the way the English word happiness is used. And it wouldn't yeah. be a violation of the way that the Greek word eudaimonia is used. But I think we, you know, we want to recognize that this is our language. This is how we, this, this is how we, 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 um, we use the term happiness. And, more than that, you know, it raises the question, okay, should we only care about living a eudaimon life? Should we turn our back on happiness and just sort yeah. of say this reflects a deep, you know, misunderstanding that has gotten embedded in our culture or something like that? And I wouldn't say that. I would say we can hope for a happy life. And I would say it's good to hope for a happy life. Uh, as Christians, we believe that God loves us. God cares about what happens to us. And, you know, as I started saying, God is communicating, God's overflowing love to us, wants, wants to communicate that love, wants us to be in friendship with God. So I think Christians probably not only, you know, are sort of licensed to hope for happiness, but ought to hope for happiness. And I wouldn't want anything that I've said about, you know, the, the, pref- the, the uh, way in which welfare prior eudaimonism is problematic to to be read as, as saying that we shouldn't wish for, hope for happiness. Mm-hmm. Fully realized God's friendship with us would be perfect happiness. But I think we also have to recognize that perfect happiness is not only not under our control, but it's really not within, not possible within the confines of, of this life. So I think part of living well is recognizing that we're not going to get perfect happiness, hmm. uh, and that we can still still live live well and live in response to God's love. Does that help at all to to you respond? No, it does. Yeah, no, that's that's helpful. I just yeah, it's something you know you you think about. I think most of us think about you know is um, how happiness is kind of put forward as this um, thing to be pursued, at least widely in culture. And then how does that integrate with my Christian faith, you know? And, and I think, yeah, you're helping, helping me think about that. So yeah, that, that does respond, Jennifer. Yeah. I mean, I do think some aspects of our culturally ingrained desire for happiness do need to be corrected and curbed, yeah, but that you... doesn't mean throwing out happiness altogether. I mean, it's redefining it. Yeah. Would you say more about what specifically needs to be, you feel like needs to be redefined in culture? Well, I do think, especially in American culture, there's this aspiration to really to feel good all the time, to feel Hmm. up all the time. And I think that's, um, that's unrealistic and probably damaging. Hmm. And I think also so much of the American pursuit of happiness is really a pursuit of of success and wealth and prosperity and power. Uh, so a lot of it is getting clear about really, really we should be about living a, a, a worthwhile life and mm. everything's going to fall out the way it falls out. And our priorities yeah. are, are probably deeply warped in many, in many cases. Mm. Yeah. I just, as you were speaking well, two th- I was reminded of uh, Gandalf speaking to Frodo, and you know, 
that uh, Frodo saying, I wish this hadn't happened. He's like, so do all who live in such times. But that is not for them to decide. It's for them mm. to decide what to do with the time they're given. And I just, you just reminded me of that. And frankly, I'm always glad to be reminded of Gandalf talking to Frodo. So, <laughs> yeah. but also an, another thing that you brought up there, Jennifer, that I just would like to pursue a little bit further, because I'm always very interested, actually, in how eschatological hope will affect our theology and our ethics and our praxis. So I'm just wondering if you, and you always started touching on that a little bit there. So I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how like a robust understanding of God's ultimate purposes for the world would affect then a eudaimonic approach to Christian ethics. Yeah, thank you for that question. I mean, I think ultimately eschatological hope orients us and it helps us to keep from getting distracted. Mm. So if we have an eschatological orientation, it, it, protects us from thinking that perfect happiness is something that's within reach or ought to be within reach mm -hmm. here and now, that it's the sort of thing that we could control or the sort of thing that we could bring about. It reminds us, no, it's, it's, it's way better and vaster than mm -hmm. that. Uh, and that's a wonderful corrective to have. So what we can do is to seek to devote our lives again, to what's really worthy of that devotion and try to align ourselves with God's loving purposes. And then we're relieved of a lot of responsibility for bringing about that perfection that right. is the eschatological good. And so I think too, it preserves us from despair. It's a way of, of feeding a, a deep hopefulness about this world in which we live, that it is always, always loved by God and sustained in the midst of whatever catastrophes are at our doorstep. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. One of the things I've often found is important and I'm just even just mulling this over, just thinking about your, this new dynamic approaches. I mean, even the content of what we think our eschatological hope is can greatly, you know, I mean, if you have more of a vision of, Oh, well, we'll just sort of leave this world behind, then your idea of what would be good will become rather, well, as we said earlier, heavenly minded, not so much earthly good. Whereas, a robust understanding that God intends to redeem and transform the world could help be a sort of guide us towards. So then a good life would look like living more towards that as much as we can here and now. And so it's just, yeah, just thinking about that in terms of a eudaimonic approach, I finding it very interesting and hopeful. Yeah. just Thank you. Well, I'm thank you. Yeah, just pondering that. Yeah. So yeah, well, Time's getting on. We might uh, shift our focus a little bit now to some uh, questions con about connecting scholarship to the church and Christian life. So actually, I'll just ask right now, Jennifer. So who is a Christian ethicist uh, that you think that every Christian should read? You, you can name more than one if you want to. Ah, uh, well, here's where we also potentially get into some disagreements about who gets to count as a Christian ethicist, right? Yeah. Who do we put okay. in what Very, That's an excellent yeah. modifier on the question. But, Great. Well, I will go ahead and, and uh, uh, throw out one that um, certainly just is a Christian thinker that ought to be read by every Christian at, okay. at some point. Um, and that's Augustine, I think. Mm -hmm. right? and, and, you know, in terms of what, what's an accessible starting point, I would say read Augustine's Confessions. I, I think the centuries melt away. Just such a mm -hmm. certainly conveys to us this this uh, deep longing to be aligned with God's purposes, but also, of course, has this profound understanding of human psychology. And even you know, it, we might disagree with him about a million things, but at the end sure. of the day, I would love for every Christian to spend a little time with Augustine. But you know, in terms of more contemporary figures. I, I myself, uh, early on in my career, was quite shaped by the work of Stanley Hauerwas. And um, I, I would encourage people to, to keep reading Stanley Hauerwas. Mm -hmm. He is one of the most accessible Christian ethicists, uh, for one thing. So accessibility mm -hmm. is, is great. But I think, too, he really knows how to articulate what it is to be to be enfolded in God's story in a deeply compelling way that connects with, well, that corrects our, our tendency to, to lapse into all sorts of forms of, of idolatry, mm -hmm. uh, 
to consumerism, to the nation, whatever it is. Uh, so I, that would be one. And then, you know, in terms of really recent work, I would mention Norman Wurzbaum. He's a Christian ethicist at Duke. He um, is very interested in agrarian thought, has, has written on food, um, and just more generally on, on ecology and Christian faith, and also has that gift of writing in an accessible way. That sounds quite interesting, actually. Yeah, I might check that out. Thank you. <laughs> is there um, a starting point you would recommend, Jennifer, for uh, Stanley Hauerwas, like for listeners? Well, Stanley Horowitz does write a, a tremendous amount. So yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Where to start? Uh, where to begin? Um, you know, I do think a peaceable kingdom is a terrific place to start. It's uh, many of his writings are more essayistic. So, peaceable kingdom is one that was that has more of a, a unity as a as a whole volume. Okay. Cool. That's very good. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so Jennifer, just kind of thinking about, again, we've your whole, I think our whole conversation today is going to be super practical just in light of your work, but um, thinking about the life of the church and the life of the Christian, how do you think about suffering in relation? You have already been talking about this a little bit, but what is the role of suffering in Christian formation? Um, yeah. There's a lot of places you could go with that, but how would you start thinking about that? Yeah, no, it's an important question. So, I mean, I think I touched on this a little bit already that the life, um, you know, a life that's devoted to the good, a life of, of living well can expose you to a great deal of suffering and loss. Mm -hmm. I and mean, we can start with Jesus, right? Who ends up on yeah. a cross, right? Yes. That's right and center for Christians. But I mean, Martin Luther King Jr. You know, ends up being murdered. So so devoting your life to, to what is, is good in itself can lead to suffering. But I don't think that Christians are called to seek out suffering. Hmm. I don't think that a life of suffering is in and of itself a life that's more well-lived than hmm. a life that's not full of suffering. So, and, and I don't think we should glorify or idealize suffering. Suffering hmm. can can wear us down. Suffering can make it extraordinarily di difficult or, or even impossible to to respond well to the mm -hmm. goods and the people around us. But sometimes we are able to learn from suffering. Sometimes suffering does make us more resilient. So if suffering comes our way, I mean, I think that the idea would be to try to make it an occasion for learning, try to make it an occasion for growth and resilience and strength. And amazing things can happen. In, in that sort of a context. And suffering can really clarify for us what is important. So a lot of the extraneous details of life fall away. And that can happen if if you have a, say a serious illness or someone around you, one of your loved ones has a serious illness, you feel all the superfluous things just, just don't, no longer important. The, the, the things you spend 90% of your, of your time worrying about and fussing over and being busy about, and it, it just becomes crystal clear. What matters is our love for one another. And so sometimes we're able to take that with us as life perhaps fortunately becomes more normal again. And we leave that state of clarity maybe we can take some of that with us and mm. it can help us to live mm. to live better very good so i was wondering if you could tell us jennifer a little bit about so i mean a broad question would be like you know so how can what is virtue and how can it be cultivated but i want to make it a little more specific maybe sort of within the context of the church and christian life if if there was a thing that you could just tell churches to that you like them to work on more about how to help really cultivate, you know, virtue in the lives of the people, you know, in their churches, what would you want to tell them? Like, what's the thing to the churches you'd love to see them do more to cultivate virtue in our lives? Hmm. So, I mean, first off, just to take a step back a bit. I mean, I do think it's really important to see that institutions can play a really 
central role in Mm -hmm. ethical and spiritual formation. So if we think about the virtues as stable dispositions to to perceive well, respond well, feel well, and so on. And we talked a little bit earlier about the way in which that sometimes that that formation in the virtues takes place through finding role models that we admire and aspiring to be like them, reflecting on what's admirable about them and so on. So that might look like, well, that's a process that you can engage in as an individual. You, you, know, you might read scripture and novels and you, you mm-hmm. play sports and you're looking for role models everywhere you go and so on. But of course, that's just only a, a small part of, of the picture. Mm-hmm. And certainly the institutions that we inhabit not only explicitly teach us various things, mm-hmm. but there's a lot that is just baked into the mm-hmm. way things are done. We sometimes talk about the practices. What are the practices of this community? Mm-hmm. And often, you know, you might encounter a toxic culture where the normal way of, react, of relating to others is backbiting and competition and um you, you know maybe cynicism negativity and that can profoundly shape not only the experience of people in the institution but the kind of people they become over time right it mm-hmm. it it warps their cult their own character in fundamental ways. So, the, and, and, and churches are no exception to this, right? I mean, that all of those things can, can um, become characteristic of, of churches as well. Mm-hmm. And I think we have a, a particularly challenging time right now for churches, which are so many of them facing declines in membership, declines in attendance and financial pressures of various sorts, and there's a sort of sense of competition over a smaller and smaller pie and so on. There's negative public perceptions and so on. Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, I think it's it's really critical for churches to be thinking, not just, okay, how do we, how do we get the dollars together? How do we drive up membership? How do we attract people and so on? But also to be thinking, okay, how is it that we live as a community that is shaped by God's love and is shaping people in God's love. Mm-hmm. Just to be constantly aware of that aspect. Um, and partly we, of course, have the great gift that the center of the life of the church is worship. Mm-hmm. So the center is constant activity, embodied activity of voicing our praise to God. If, if, our, if our most central act as humans is to glorify God, then that becomes very explicit in worship. A lot of our lives might be it's just kind of submerged, you know, but in worship it's front and center. And so this constant invitation to reconfigure our priorities, to reconfigure our lives, to ask ourselves where where we're headed in relationship to God's purposes. So that is a reminder to individuals. It's a reminder to us communally as we worship together in in community. It's not a magic bullet uh, by any means, but it's a great gift. It's a great gift to, to church communities. Yeah, no, it's not a magic bullet, certainly. I mean, it's hard to find a magic bullet to spiritual formation, given that that would be sort of antithetical, really. <laughs> to formation. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. It's, it is It is personal. It's interpersonal. It, it goes mm-hmm. through idiosyncratic experiences that we have, you know, rooted back in our in our early childhood and then all the layers of experiences that we have, but that's part of, that's part of the gift, right? That in, in community, you can, you can bring that together with others experiences and work, work through it together. And hopefully and in relationship to, yeah, to, to God and, and God's purposes. Yeah. I really appreciate that. Yeah. 
centrality of worship and reminding ourselves of through that to sort of what really centers us and role models you talked about there and yeah, and just developing good cultures rather than toxic ones and just the formative effects of that. That's all very helpful. Thank you. Jennifer, um, just kind of a follow-up question. Do you think there's a virtue that the American church is particularly lacking um, that we could really stand to grow in as a, you know, it's a, it's a kind of a sweeping generalization, but is there something you feel, a virtue you feel that we are particularly bad at? Hmm, that's a great question. I, I'm a little hesitant to say that there is a single virtue that I would want to say is, is lacking across the board. Yeah. I think that's probably a little bit more particular to different communities. I think gratitude is a wonderful virtue that many of our communities could cultivate more. Hmm. Yeah. And one of the reasons well, is that I think out of gratitude flows joy and energy hmm. that I think are needed in a time of feeling scarcity and hmm. anxiety uh, and you know dread and competition and all of these things. So certainly I experienced church and worship as such a site of joy when I was a young person and that sustains my life even today. And so the thought that many Christians don't get to experience that is a very sad thing to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I guess I'll pick that one for now. Yeah. yeah. A Sorry, it's a, it's a hard question. And I, I, I don't know if it's, yeah, like you say, it's, you're speaking to a huge thing, but I was just interested as you think about the virtues, um, yeah, what is one of those? Um, so, Jennifer, I, in preparing for today, I read this article that you'd written recently on seminaries um, and as places for formation. And um, you were even just talking about this. Um, but I'm wondering about, you, you, you were talking about the value that institutions can play in formation. So I wondered if you could talk about that a little bit. And then as we think specifically about the church, how can the church do that? But so how can um, institutions form individuals and then how can the church as an institution um, form? Educational institutions I, you're referring to? Well, I think your article originally was about seminary contexts, um, but I'm wondering if that could be applied to the church um, in some way. Well, seminary contexts are, of course, a bit different in the sense that there's this formal education that goes on. Uh, and also seminaries... Uh, have to assess their success in various yeah. dimensions, including they have to assess their success at formation, which is an interesting exercise. And yeah. so in part, that article that you referred to was an effort to, to uh, look at the research that's been done that's trying to assess how well seminaries are doing this and to just kind of wrestle with that a little bit because there's complexities in terms of how we understand formation and also what happens when we try to measure it. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and I was a little worried that some of the ways in which we go, go about trying to measure formation could actually meddle with the process of formation. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I refer to the Heisenberg and uncertainty principle that, you yeah. know, <laughs> Once you measure, you're, 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 you're interfering in the system. And so mm -hmm. the reality that would have been present had you not measured is different than the reality that's present when you do measure. And ultimately, mm -hmm. I suggest that the best way to go about this is to actually build the measuring into the formation process itself so that the measuring is actually... Uh, part and parcel of the formation. And I think in the seminary context, again, because it's, it, it's a little bit more of a formal educational institution, a really important aspect is reflecting, inviting people into a process of reflection on mm. where am I in my journey of formation? Mm. What, what strengths can I perceive? What weaknesses can I perceive? Who have been mentors for my journey? Um, you know, where have I lost my way? How have I you know, re regained per 
perspective and so on. Now, could churches uh, engage in that? Well, certainly some traditions do that in, in a very formal way through, uh, through the sacrament of confession. Mm-hmm. And as alien as that, that feels to those of us who hadn't grown up in traditions for which that's central, I think that there are certainly learnings that one could take from that about the value of of self-examination and reflection in mm. conversation with another person. Mm. I think that there is um, there has been a lot of a long long tradition in in many Protestant uh, circles of of self-examination, of, of journaling, spiritual journaling, spiritual autobiography. And I've written about that as well. And uh, that's a spiritual practice that I would love to see uh, become more robust. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think there would be ways in which that could be also built into, say, imagine what a, a teenage Sunday school class might look like that involves journaling and then conversation about the journaling Hmm. so there is that individual reflective uh, piece and then there's the conversation around it so you've got a space for private reflection and then a space for sharing so i you can imagine many ways in which some elements of formal assessment of formation could feed into things that churches are doing absolutely mm-hmm. does that does that address the yeah no exactly yeah no, i'm just i think that that's yeah it's very insightful and just i'm thinking about that constantly as um someone who wants to grow and then who's part of a church and just how can we how can institutions be places that are um like you're to you what to what you're saying, John, of not toxic, right? In our places of formation and joy. And so that's really helpful, that uh, self-reflective piece. I mean, I think you know, many churches have small groups, Bible study groups, and so on. Often these Bible study groups really are a point of, you know, not just serious study of scripture, but serious engagement with scripture in relationship to, to one's life and hmm. to listening to others think about scripture in relationship to their lives. That is absolutely a powerful context for formation. Mm. Is there some question you wish we would have asked you? (laughs) Well, you have asked terrific questions, I have to say. Is it really very, very substantive? I I know we're going to move into the fun questions. We are. We are. (laughs) Maybe this is a kind of a bridging sort of question. Um, you could have asked me, uh, where, where do I encounter God? Where do I hmm. experience? Well, where do you? Okay. All right. Here we are. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and, and I would have said, I encounter God most fully in, in music and in nature. Hmm. And, and I, I love to sing. I've always sung in choirs my whole hmm. life. And I mean, anything from Renaissance polyphony up through the Anglican choral tradition. In fact, I was I was realizing both this and my love of, of nature, my love of the natural world. I always, when I am out in nature, I'm always hearing hymns in my head, you know. Yeah. So they're connected for me. It's, it's mm. uh, all very tightly connected. But I spent most of my life reading books, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm a scholar, so I read and I write and so on. But actually, I think my spirituality is is rooted in these, in these other things. Mm-hmm. Lovely. Uh, can I ask a follow-up on that, Jennifer? Like, do you have a favorite a song? I mean, I, I keep asking these <laughs> big questions, but yeah, the, a song that really connects you to God. There are just so many. <laughs> yeah. <I'm... laughs> you can list multiple. So, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you a, one of one of thousands of favorite hymns, "Fairest Lord Jesus." Mm. One of the hymns that connects me to nature as well. As yeah, many. exactly. I was thinking that as you said that that song is about so much about nature too. So, mm-hmm. um, so Jennifer, as you kind of uh, mentioned, uh, so our last section, we just want to hear about you as a, a whole person, and uh, so we call it marginalia. 
answer. These are just some fun questions. We'd love to just hear about you as a, yeah, as, as, as you live your life. And um, so um, I would love to start. This is, I'm excited about this question. Do you have a favorite novel? It's another one of these really hard, hard questions. <laughs> or just one that, that strikes you today, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Can I give you two? But yes, I won't say too much about please. either of them. Yeah. So I mean, I, this is not imaginative. I mean, this is many people's favorite novel, but I absolutely adore Anna Karenina by mm-hmm. Tolstoy. Uh, love those grand, realistic novels. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Tolstoy just. Uh, I remember when reading it for the first time, just being so sucked into this world and, and, and I felt the intensity, uh, I think of his, well, the intensity of my experience reading, which felt like the intensity of his character's experience yeah. in life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think I've always wanted to move beneath the sort of everydayness of life that's part of what drew me into theology. Mm-hmm. And I felt like, yes, the intensity of life is is there when you yeah. read Tolstoy. Oh, yeah. 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 Would you say yeah. the second one too? Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, and again, this is many people's, it, it would be up there on many people's lists, but Marilyn Robinson's Gilead. Okay. Oh, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. Wonderful novel. And I think for a contemporary American reader, it's a pathway to grasping why someone would care, right, about Mm -hmm. religion. Why, why, you know, I think, unfortunately, many of our contemporaries don't really have a longing for transcendence, or it's so, it's so submerged that they don't know how to connect with it. And and I think she builds a a bridge there, builds a a pathway. That was my experience of that. And I actually just read that this year for the first time. And yeah, I, I feel like I, if, I mean, even as a Christian, it made me long for the transcendent in a, in a fresh way. So yeah, those are, I, I have only, I've, I, my confession is that I've started Anna Karenina and I haven't finished. I, I got, I'm on page like 300. So you're going to make me try again. I got lost in some of these what, I don't know some of the details. I, I, I but it, it's a very passionate novel. I need to uh, try it again. I think so. I think the main problem with these Russian novels is that you have to figure out who's who when the name keeps changing. That's yeah. the problem. Yeah. <laughs> I found that with the uh, yeah. I, I found that with uh, Dostoevsky. I found that yeah. You could, there's quite a you're trying to track who's <laughs> what's going on, but yeah. So. Um, yeah, John, you, do you have a question? Oh, so I was going to ask you about a favorite movie or film, but I think I would rather ask you, what's your favorite hobby? Oh, my goodness. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I, I talked about nature. So hiking is one of my favorite hobbies, just to Ooh, get out there. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I suppose cooking is another hobby. I'm not, I don't do fancy stuff. I'm not all about how it looks. But I do, get, you know, given a choice between cleaning and cooking i will cook any day you know mm-hmm. get i hear you on that satisfaction yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that. yeah it's part of the good life i think cooking so mm-hmm. yeah but yeah and also getting to enjoy what was cooked yeah <laughs> but, you know, it, it is it is pretty profound when you when you think about food right it connects us mm-hmm. to all other organisms on earth that connects us with one another in community. Uh, so yeah, it, mm-hmm. it's not surprising that food is at the heart of, of the Eucharist because we are connected to food. Mm-hmm. Do you know this? Um, there's this song, uh, this uh, um, uh, by Big Thief called Spud Infinity, which is like, it's a silly song, but it's about <laughs> potatoes, but it's about how potatoes connect all of life and they teach about anyhow it's a anyhow it's exactly to your point <laughs> Jennifer, so. I, I yeah you can go check either, it out yeah that sounds like fun <laughs> yeah it's like a barnyard stomp i would say is the genre so um yeah just be prepared for that but anyhow yeah i totally agree <laughs> with your point about food i should definitely include that in my food lecture in my intro to christian it's called yeah i i i mean it's a it's a good song i i i, I would recommend it um so then i guess i'm just on the books thing maybe to a fault but uh um what are you reading right now jennifer especially like maybe just for fun in particular if, if you're willing to share on that 
Well, I generally, I, I wish I read more for fun than I do. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but I, but in terms of what I'm reading right now, I, I am uh, enjoying, um, oh, let's see, uh, Richard Powers, The Overstory uh, hmm. connects with my, oh, you're not familiar with it. It's I'm a, not. it's a um, large scale novel uh, about, you know, tree huggers and okay. things that have been learned about how trees communicate under the ground uh, through their root systems and fungi networks and things. So wow. it's, um, it's a, has five stories or five or six stories that are interwoven wow. like the, like the roots of a tree system. So it's, it's a fascinating and, uh, and ambitious uh, novel. Yeah. Wow. And then another thing that I'm reading is a book by a colleague of mine in comparative literature at Yale, Martin Hegland, who's a, a Swedish uh, thinker. It's called This Life. And he is mounting an argument that you can't properly value this life and its, its finitude if you are religious. And so it's a it's an anti-religious uh, book, hmm. or you could say it's a it's a book that advances a form of secular piety yeah. or secular religiousness, and it's um, you know very thoughtful, very well done, and I mean I think it's wrong, uh, yeah, yeah, but wrong in a very interesting way, and so I'm I'm enjoying reading that, and yeah, uh, I'm right now having conversations with him in my head, but I look forward to being able to actually discuss it yeah. with him in person at some point. You'll have to give him a copy of that Marilyn Robinson, I think, uh, you know, in response or so, maybe something else. That's too. a good idea. Yeah, 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 that's an idea. But yeah. Can I ask you a, a, just one more question here, Jennifer? So what is the best compliment you've ever received and what made it good? Ooh. Well, I, I certainly was very moved and sustained for months um, by having a respected colleague tell a publisher that that my putting on virtue manuscript was far and away the best work we have in Christian ethics, um, wow. um, you know, today or recent recent work in Christian ethics. Wow. So that was humbling and and uh, very affirming to me. But you know, beyond that, I think it's it's um, it's hearing from students and. Uh, hearing from students that a course has, has made a difference and mm. I had an incredible, well, I have two experiences actually that come out of the pandemic. So one was I, I taught an intro to Christian ethics course at Yale Divinity School, mm -hmm. completely online during the pandemic. And it was challenging, you know, you didn't really feel connected to the students. Yeah. It was a lecture class. So I would get to class and I would, I would say, you know, personal chit chat to the few students who showed up early and then up would go my PowerPoint and I couldn't see them anymore. And I would kind of go through my lecture. So it, it meant so much to me. I had a student um, two years later who stopped me in the parking lot, actually a graduate. She was coming back for reunion. And she said, I think about your class every day. Wow. Oh my goodness. You know, that, yeah. that and, you know, she's in ministry now. She's, she's working in a church. Wow. And I, mm -hmm. Wow. You know, I, I felt so disconnected from that class. If even one student, you know, maybe the rest were just sleeping, but if even one student felt that way. And then um, the other is also a pandemic story. Early on in the, in the height of the, the worst of the pandemic, I got an email out of nowhere from someone who's an emergency room doctor. Hmm. And he said, 25 years ago, I took a bioethics class with you. Hmm. And now I'm, I'm, you know, I keep revisiting that class and those conversations as we think about how, how we deal with not having enough, you know, PPE and not having enough respirators wow. and, and so yeah. on. Oh my goodness. You know, wow. uh, Somebody's actually, you know, actually thinking about this 25 years later. Wow. And then, so anyway, it's, those are examples of the ways in which you sometimes in this in this life that I am so fortunate to be able to lead, lead you, 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 mm. yeah, you find out you made a difference. So you had no idea. Feels like a life well lived. I'm working on it. <laughs> yeah, well, it sounds, try again. Yeah. <laughs> that's cool. Oh, well, that's wonderful. Thank you. 
Well, Jennifer, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you today. So thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. Just really and I appreciate it. This has been delightful. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. We've really enjoyed the conversation, Jennifer. Oh, l- likewise. It's, it's been such a treat. Thank you so much for inviting me. And we'd like to thank uh, you, the listener, too, for joining us today. Um, hope you enjoyed this conversation. And if you'd like to help us, um, please um, share the podcast with others. Subscribe on your podcast player and give it a review. 